Hello and welcome to episode 104 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. And I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, there is a great back catalogue of guests, as I always say at this point of the podcast, so please do go and check that out. We've had some great guests just this season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but if you go further back, there's there's been brilliant guests like Peter James and Sarah Pimbra. And well, you really do like go that. back. You're old school guests. Yeah, old school, really old school. <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course, we have another brilliant guest this week. Yeah, this week we're chatting with the fantastic Ben Aronovich, who got his start writing for Doctor Who on the TV back in the day, where you could send in your scripts and they would they would read stuff from the members of the public. Incredible, it was very exciting. I know it's amazing. Uh, and then he wrote some spin-off novels, and he, as you'll hear from the talk, he had a number of kind of false starts trying to get his his writing uh, off the ground, and it was really quite recently where his Rivers of London series of books, which have just become a pretty massive hit, I have to say. Yeah, they really have. And they're spanning not just books now, there's comics and there's talk of a TV show. Yep. So um, Ben's back. Yeah, it's... Sorry? Ben's back. Ben's back in a big way. As he speaks to... <laughs> as he tells us, it, it seems to only happen when the rest of the world is collapsing that he has <laughs> That's success. Right. That's so right, he says that, yeah. I'm not sure what to wish for here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wish him success, but I also don't want him too successful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um... So, yeah, no, and he's a really fun guy yeah. to talk to, and he's got great experience uh, in both the the sort of script writing world and, and novel writing world. So it's a really fun episode. Um, so we'll get straight to it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook, um, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. 
Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? No, I wanted to be a special effects designer. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Only, this was back before computers, by the way. Only I'm really crap at model making and I'm colorblind. <laughs> okay. And I, I'm not very patient. And I'm, yeah, so it wasn't going to happen. So uh, I, the thing I liked about special effects was the lying, basically, the lying, the deception. And I, mm-hmm. I wanted to get into television and, and lie on television. I mean, fictionally, not obviously not like <laughs> kind of PR flat or something if I wanted to lie on television normally. And um, uh, and so I started writing scripts, and that's how I ended up being a writer, basically. And, and you, your first, uh, I think, at least according to the source that is Wikipedia, your, your first... Um, step into that was was doctor who is that is that i love the fact my wikipedia page has more about an imaginary season of doctor who that never happened yeah i I noticed (laughs) that 27 yeah i did that best-selling novel series i think that (laughs) sums up wikipedia perfectly (laughs) okay obviously this is what's important to wikipedia uh, the collective internet is yeah exactly <laughs> but but was it was it doctor who that you first yes, doctor who. i mean i'd written obviously i'd written scripts and i was submitting uh in those days you went via script editors so i was submitting to script editors and uh what you did is you you found something you remember this is before video mm-hmm. so you had to sit there with your notebook making a note of who the script editor was whereas it went whooshing past <laughs> yeah okay you know, uh, and so you watch something, you make a note of the script editor, and you wrote something, and you would send it to a script editor who was working on something that was a bit vaguely like what you wrote, and then hope that they would notice it. And I, I made the sensible decision of a writing quite a good script, actually, if I say so myself. Although I've read it recently, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and binding it in red, so it kind of stood out on the pile. This is this is back when slush piles really were piles yeah. of slush, right? And I mean, the Doctor Who slush pile was astounding. So, um, I mean, literally did have people writing on lavender paper in crayon. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is the time when, when, am I right in saying that Doctor Who and Star Trek and stuff, they were open to the public and anyone could... Could write in and send send well, in a script. About Star Trek because I I never did that, but yeah, you could you could submit. I mean, if you knew who to go to. Well, yeah, people just used to write care of Doctor Who and there would be a producer and it would end up in the producer's office. And the poor old Andrew Cartman would have to look at it. And, you know, obviously they thought it out, the ones that were written in crayon. You see, you can't do that now because everyone has final draft. And so therefore all the scripts are perfect. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now you have to do clever things like say, oh, you can only submit it on the month of, with an R in it and on with a full moon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All outside the full moon category. And that's really just to make sure people are paying attention because you've got to filter mm-hmm. you know, so many scripts. And now, of course, you, you can't become a script writer unless um, your father is a director or something. <laughs> You're just not allowed. Or you went to, I went to school with someone whose father is a director. And and obviously you you had a, a couple of episodes of Doctor Who and and Casualty and stuff, and you you did a novelization of your one of your episodes of Doctor Who. Is that right? Yes. Well, W. H. Allen used to just routinely offer the writer of the episodes 
a chance to do the novelization. Okay. Didn't. They just gave it to to, to um, Terence Dix. So we were all like, yeah, pay me to learn how to write. So it was great. I got paid. It was actually a novella length because it was 40,000 words. But um, the, yeah, so for me, it was my, my first ever prose. Someone paid me to, to write terrible prose. It was brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. And of course, you've already written this plot. And I yeah. very, very low expectations of Doctor Who novellas. So in order to shine, all you had to do was not do a terrible job. And so therefore, well, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> So did they do novellas of every episode? No, I didn't because I I I'm very bad. I I get into a funk. So I have like one successful thing and then I panic. This is one of the things I've learned to overcome, by the way. But you guys do one successful thing and then you panic. And so thankfully Mark Pratt did the next one. Right. Mark, you gotta do it. And and so when you're working on the novelization stuff, did that was that the trigger that made you think, hmm, actually, maybe I'd like to try write novels rather than screenplays? I never understood this idea to compartmentalise. It's like it's like people say, oh, you write like fantasy crime. When what was the other? I've never occurred to me not to write a fantasy crime or to not, you know, or maybe a science fiction crime or or, or science fiction or fantasy. The, the mm. idea that you compartmentalise these things never occurred to me. The idea that you would write scripts but not novels or write mm. novels. My only problem with novels is there's so many words. It's not sure. Scripts is like twenty thousand words. <laughs> Novel is like ninety six thousand words. <laughs> Which one are you going to do? Seriously. <laughs> but but there, the, I suppose there is a difference in the in the sense that a novel you're more in charge of it. If it's not a Doctor Who novella, perhaps, but if it's your own novel, you're more in charge of it than a script. I suppose a novel is the closest thing to telepathy we have. Mm-hmm. And it's completely unmediated. I mean, it goes onto the page, and the page goes into your eyes, out of my head, onto the page, mm-hmm. onto the page, into your eyes, into your brain. Right. So mm-hmm. that's a completely different thing from writing a television script, which is a completely collaborative art. Which means that you're basically just making a recipe book, which then thousands of you know quite talented, and in some cases untalented people, will then have an input into. Yeah. And, you know, some of the ingredients aren't available and it comes out very strange. Fortunately, I don't have to worry about that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Your kind of big breakthrough, I suppose, came in 2011 with the success of your first novel uh, of the the Peter Grant series, Rivers of London. Is that, would you, was that the kind of first moment you thought, actually, I can make a real run of these types no, of no, no. I always assumed that I would make my living from writing and I gave up the day job seven times <laughs> so yeah don't give up the day job that's a good piece of advice right don't give up the day job. <laughs> I gave up the day job seven times and it was a disaster until the seventh <laughs> oh, well there you go you got there eventually though I got what there was eventually. the day job oh whatever what I was doing at the time I've got no skills so it was retail <laughs> I was working in a bookshop. I chose bookshop because that's the least terrible retail job you can get. But I live in central London, so I was going bankrupt. I mean, you, you know, you cannot live on a retail salary while working, living in central London. You just can't. It's not something that can happen. And so, therefore, I was, you know, that's why half the people I went to school with now live in Bromley on Hayes mm-hmm. and even and, further afield than that. And, and up until 2011, when that novel came out, were you still writing stuff? Were you still pitching things? Were you still trying? Uh, I, well, the thing is, no one tells you your career as a television writer is over, right? So you just go into the, and, and when you are, even when you are a television writer, you go to a lot of meetings where people, blah, 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 blah. 
and you go, rah, 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 and you promise them the earth and the moon and, and they say they go away, think about it and nothing happens. And that happens when you're a television writer. What happens when you're not a television writer is you do that and then eventually you get about two years later, you go, oh, I haven't been paid. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone bankrupt. Um, and that's basically, so I had to go out and get a job. Well, go on the dole, get a job, go back on the dole, go, you know, that kind of, you know, it was the 80s, you know, it was traditional. And... Um, and so yeah i'm i'm very resentful i only i'm only ever successful during um crisis as far as i can tell (laughs) uh i I was successful in the in the the late 80s recession and i was successful a brief moment of success when the dot-com bubble burst and then during that period of like prosperity when everyone was watching homes home escape to the country and better homes and all that kind of porn on television, I was freaking going bankrupt. And then as soon as I, I might have a successful book, the economy crashed. <laughs> so so what, I, what you're saying is we don't, we, we hope that you well, start being successful so soon. Things yeah. might start picking up, but no, thank God for the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep an eye on your career and every year doing well, I'll start you know, buying yeah, lots of toilet paper. Toilet paper, yeah. stop yeah. <laughs> and you have to start. And, and, um, uh, if we if we rewind a bit before uh, Rivers of London, you also uh, did a, some audio drama as well. Um, it, was that as a result of contacts you'd made doing the TV work oh, as well? No, that was that was you know producers. You talk to people and they go, oh, "Let's do a Blake mm. Seven audio drama." So we did a Blake Seven audio drama, which nobody mm. bought, and and we all got soaked. I mean, I didn't get as soaked as the, as the producer, poor guy. Right, that was a, he. You know, that was a really good. Well, he had bought the rights to Blake Seven, and he mm. wanted to revive the TV series, and I was on. I was on board for that, and and we couldn't get any traction at all because that was a period when British television didn't make science fiction at all under any circumstances yeah. because we hate science fiction. Basically, you got to understand that at that time British television was basically run by people who hated science fiction. Right. It was yeah. just, they 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 all went to um, posh school and they and went to university and they all sort of they, there was only two things that were popular in uh, with them and that was like big ratings so if you were Houghton Knowles house party that was fine or you were making kind of like sensitive dramas about people in big houses and that was another fight staring out of windows and things like you that know? Yeah. and they they hated science because <laughs> I think they were worried that people might point and stare at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they hated Doctor Who. That's why Doctor Who got cancelled the first time. And when, that's why when they brought it back, they shoved it off to Cardiff, mm. to be as far away from it as possible. And then it was hugely successful, and they're kind of stuffed. But they still hate it. But uh, uh, so they weren't going to make Blake Seven. Nobody was going to make Blake Seven. And um, so we, he had the rights. He spent quite a lot of money on acquiring the rights. So we had to do something with it. So we thought, let's do some audio dramas. Yeah. So we did some audio dramas, and now I thought. Some of them were bloody good. And is, is, was there any difference in your process to writing a script for TV and writing it for audio? No, scripts are the same. Scripts are the same for audio dramas, uh, TV and film, and comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, the genre, the, the medium is different. And so, yeah. therefore, the what comes out the other end, obviously, is different. So, you know, what comes out of a TV script is different from when you're writing an audio script, which is different from when you're writing a comic script. But the process is very similar. It's all about structure, mm-hmm. building up structure, uh, uh, and then and then telling a story in a very economical way. They're all very economical formats. 
what's lovely about novels is you can just have stuff happen for no reason because it's like you've got enough words yeah. that you can yeah. you can afford to have something happen for no reason. And, that, and you, yeah, it's, especially when you're writing a crime drama, you see, in a crime drama, in a television crime drama, you all watch it, you go, he's the bad guy, I can tell, because it's the yeah. only reason they would mention the janitor in that <laughs> scene there is if he turns out to have been the bad guy at the end of the story, right? But in a novel, you can have a scene with a janitor and it might not be the guy, yeah. right? Yeah. You can you can introduce a, jan- a comic relief janitor or something, and because you don't have to pay for an actor, it doesn't take up screen time. You can you he can just come into a comic relief mat, and then oh, is it the janitor? But you don't know because it's a novel. You see, and I suppose ah. when you're writing an audio drama or a comic, I guess I I, I well. Is it something when you're writing for TV? Are you always thinking of the budget in in your head? You know, are you are you writing stuff and you're thinking there's no point writing this scene because we'll never make it; it would be too expensive. Whereas for audio drama, this guy's yeah, you, you have to. I mean, the great thing about audio is you don't have to worry about that. But then you have to worry about things like you have to show. I yeah, mean, you know, for yeah. Where it's show not tell, you can see the problem with audio dramas right there. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to come up with ways for people to go. Oh my god, it's an enormous spaceship! Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Dread for audio drama, which I won't name, where the characters was being one of them was being tied up and literally said out loud what was happening to them. You know, no, don't tie me up in a rope. What is that a gun you've got there? And I was like, nobody would ever <laughs> talk like this. And it was such a clunky way of telling the listener what's going on. You always have this problem. Do I go with a narrator? Mm-hmm. Do I go with uh, my my current favorite at the moment is Angstrom, which is so, so it's like the snow fell like a very yeah snow. yeah that's my current favorite audio comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so if, if, then we go back to Rivers of London, in, in which uh, came out in 2011. Um, My publicists will be very thankful if we would go back to Rivers of London. Yeah, yeah, we will. We will <laughs> chat about it. Um, but, I mean, you've probably been asked this question a million times, but where did you get the idea to sort of personify the rivers? Okay, well, I don't get that question. I mean, I usually get that question like third. Okay, well then. So why did you write fiction and crime? No, um, and you know, so uh, okay, as you probably know, because you you're right, you never have like nothing ever comes from like one idea, right? You have mm-hmm. a basic idea, but you start collecting things, and they kind of float around. And what happens is you have like a. I, I always think of it as a very dusty. I, I always think of it as a as a as a kind of like dusty attic, and you go in there, and you've got all these things that you've had lying around in the attic, and you go, "Oh, actually, I remember." And you flick open your notebooks, and you go, "Shit, that's a really good idea." And um, sometimes you you have an idea, and you, and it dovetails into another idea that you had. So, so I thought, ah, oh, I'm going to do magic cops, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I had a couple of other sort of contemporary fantasy ideas, right? This is these are all television ideas at the time, yeah. And one of them was, uh, and one of them was, what if Hogwarts was a comprehensive? And that really wasn't a, a, a serious idea. It was just a bit of idle speculation. I don't know about you, but I watch, you know, I'm watching television. I'm going, oh, what if that was that? What if, yeah. you did that? what if you turned that idea on its head? So basically, and I thought, well, if, if Hogwarts was a comprehensive, you wouldn't get an owl, right? You get a social worker. <laughs> and I thought, well, who would the social worker be? And I thought, okay. It's a bit boring because this was actually beginning to firm up because it was it stopped being what if Hogwarts was a comprehensive, but a, a story about a magical school and a, a comprehensive magical school, you know, rather than an elite institution like Hogwarts was. Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought, well, what's that going to be like? And I thought, well, who would the I thought, well, social workers? A bit boring. So I thought, what if the social worker was was uh, 
the goddess of the Thames and she's Nigerian. So the idea being that, that after the great stink, um, that Father Thames never comes down below Teddington Lock, which is state, which is a fact that stayed in the books. Uh, and this this river goddess from a small stream in 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 Ogun State in Nigeria turns up and goes ah the whole river and like and the, and and that's why since the sixties the Thames has been getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and kind of like more and more prestigious and has stopped being kind of like a cesspit that everyone throws rubbish into, and that's what the process was and that's that's why the Thames has been rejuvenated you see and and. Uh, uh, and that was where that idea came from. And then once you have her, when you combine that idea with the rivers of London, then you, you look at a map and there's a river called yeah. Rook and you go, well, that's a name. Mm-hmm. Or you look at it and you go, well, what's Fleet like? Well, she goes down, you know, Fleet Street. She goes across Fleet Street. So, duh. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, she starts in Hampstead. I mean, it's not like she got, starts in Hampstead, goes to Camden and then ends up in Fleet Street. I mean, she's not the goddess of the media. I do not know. <laughs> to be right, and the same with the Tyburn rises in the, the even posher bit of Hampstead, comes down through, comes down through Primrose Hill, Mayfair, and then goes under Buckingham Palace, and then out by the Houses of Commons. That's the goddess of you know dodgy deals and and posh people. So, you know, once you have you realise you can do that, is that it's like wow, you know, you know this, you go, oh, I can get three hundred words out of that, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> And you and think that's where they come from? And you think books like Harry Potter, you know, really kind of um, open people up to stories of magic in kind of modern day settings? Because that I, seems I like a maybe a newish thing. I think it was well. I mean, there's always. I mean, I, I grew up reading things like The Wizard of Earth and there's the Sprague. Yeah. There's, there's there's quite a lot of urban what they call urban fantasy about uh, before Harry Potter, and a lot of YA. I mean, when I was growing up, it was called children's books. You know, like the worst witch and things yeah. like that, yeah. where, where you basically had the idea of uh, of someone plucked out of the mundane world and thrust into of uh, an invisible world of magic and stuff like that. Um, what the success of J.K. Rowling did was op- was make it respectable. Yeah, yeah. Right? So lots of people who up until then wouldn't have contemplated a book where policemen do magic have kind of like fine with that because you know they, they've had that kind of idea that idea is no longer wacky it's kind of like yeah kind of like normalized it normalized um uh, urban fantasy tropes tropes that have existed for a long time got normalized by jk rowling and yeah. also because see these are things that you could have in children's books but because yeah breakout success with adults as well and because it was so huge and because it was really big in America, where everything cultural is decided these days, then the zeitgeist came firmly down on that. And so, therefore, when my books came along, and I had, we had no idea they were going to be this successful. But I think, looking back, it was because of of, of Harry Potter made it. People could buy these books and not feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you th- do you think it's another example of? You know, is the publishing industry quite a risk-averse industry? Like, they, they, we've spoken to some other guests about this, that they always say they want new things, but they're very reluctant to back a new thing until they've seen it succeed somewhere else. Because I was published initially by um, Galance and Del Rey, who, who got quite a lot of back catalogs that would fit neatly into the kind of urban fantasy mm-hmm. um, thing. And, and also science fiction is different. See, if you... If, 
I knew I thought it was a science fiction book, right? Well, I mean, when I say science fiction, I mean the whole genre. Right, so I had a very clear idea who was going to buy it. It's going to be people like me. I was going to buy it. It's going to be people who wonder. And I ran a science fiction section and a crime section, right? Um, I had all sorts and it was very clear to me that science fiction readers like me would wander into a bookshop and they go straight for the science fiction section first. And it's only when they've exhausted all possibilities of the science fiction section do they slowly migrate yeah. out to general fiction and crime, right? Yeah. Well, that, the opposite isn't true, right? General fiction and crime readers will avoid the science fiction series section as if it will give them herpes, right? I literally watch people come in and take a detour so they won't go past <laughs> the science fiction series. I mean, quite a long detour. It's like, it's like <laughs> I'm not even sure they're aware they do it. They go, oh, science fiction, they go around this kind of corner. And so I thought I was going to be a mid-list author. I was aiming for mid-list. I didn't have ambitions. I just wanted to stop going bankrupt. I advances. I want to, you know, get on top of my mortgage. That was all I wanted, right? So I submitted. So I and my my agent, right, who took me on, was is a specialist science fiction. So basically, we went to the people that published this sort of thing, right, which is Galantz and Del Rey, and they published this sort of thing, and this is the sort of thing. Publish. None of us were expecting it to be a huge, what they call a crossover success. Yeah. Air quotes. So I keep forgetting we're on the radio. <laughs> Air quotes. Um, crossover success. And they go, oh, you're a genius. You've created this entire crossover genre. Yeah, I totally did that on purpose. Yeah, it was all planned. Was I mean, did, 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 you, did you always, uh, I mean, that maybe answers this question, which is, did you, did you have an idea of it as a series or did you think well, this, this is a singular I'm book? Bookseller. I'm a bookseller. I've been a bookseller by then for about three years. So I knew that you wanted to have three books on the shelf mm-hmm. right, for several reasons. One, it creates an immediate shelf presence. And two, if you have three books on the shelf, then they're more likely to buy all three and mm-hmm. restock them. And that keeps your presence going right mm-hmm. on the shelf. This is particularly true of science fiction or fantasy. Right? People, yeah. I like a series, okay? Just in the same way that I like a map at the beginning of my fantasy novel, right? I don't like this fashionable, oh, let's not have a map. That's Map's too nerdy. No, I want a bloody map, right? Because otherwise I don't think you're taking me seriously. Okay? I want a proper map with weird names on it or I'm not bloody buying your the book. The full, like, yeah, catalogue of names of the I don't family tree. I, I can live without the catalogue of names, right? But I want a map. Right, I want to know that you've thought about what shape that bloody continent was, and it better be an interesting shape. Right? And so, <laughs> I've gone off the subject. Uh, so, what was I saying? I was saying something important. And I about thought, the series. About Yeah, so I, I, it never occurred to me not to do a series, because I know they like a series. I didn't know what was happening next. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I made sure they understood it was going to be a series. Because it, it also... Remember, I was coming from the crime side of it, mm-hmm. right? And crime series is absolutely, totally routine, right? Ed McBain, um, Evan, you know, the Evan Hunter books, yeah. uh, um, Rebus, Morse, you yeah. know, they're all series. Poirot, they're all series books. You all have a detective, he does a crime, you know, book, group detective crime. That's what I was aiming at. I wasn't aiming for a fantasy series like Ice of Fire where there's like a plot that goes from book to book to book. Mm-hmm. But I was mostly aiming at having uh, a central character who would then solve crimes and you'd have a crime each book. And, it, you know, it, it, like I like reading those. And I'm very cross when people 
Um, that's why I lost Simon Brett. Okay, I discovered he had a series of like 14 books. So I was like, yes! This will keep me <laughs> occupied for a couple of days. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about that because when you write a series like you have with so many books, you know, and you just said that you kind of, you, you didn't approach it in the sense of mapping out here's the next 20 books and here's the path they'll take and each one will be a step in that ladder. But how do you write then? Do you approach each novel as I'm going to leave some stuff open that I might come back to later on and or not worry about it too much and just let it can be flow, fluid? Well, I have this thing called Chekhov's Garden Shed. You know, you know Chekhov's Gun, right? <laughs> uh, Chekhov's Gun is you put a gun on a mantelpiece. Um, you should have to fire it in the second act. But I, I, my attitude is you just put lots of things on the mangrove piece in case you need them later. And sometimes <laughs> you need them and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you pick them up five books later. So I always think of it as Chekhov's garden shed because you, you basically <laughs> just, sometimes you, you put things in the garden shed and then you go in there like for book five and go, oh, I've forgotten all about this. And you kind of drag it out and... <laughs> Or you go in there thinking, I know I left a plot in here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's quite nice because it means it's quite it's still quite fresh to you and it's quite exciting for you when you come back. Well, I never I very rarely know usually about halfway through one book, I have an idea of what the next book is like mm-hmm. about. Okay, but that's usually it. Mm-hmm. And often, I mean and it depends, varies from book to book. Sometimes I have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I don't know what happens in between those bits, right? Sometimes I have a beginning. Sometimes I have an end. I had, a, I had an end for one book. One book, Moon Over Soho, I had a title. Mm-hmm. Right? That's all I had. Moon Over Soho, it's such a great title. I've got a title. It's it's going to be Soho, obviously. Uh, jazz. Go. That was basically what I did. You know, and then you start noodling around with it. I don't have to tell you guys how this works. You noodle around with it and like tease out. It's like you're teasing out ideas. And sometimes your characters just go, hey, today I'm going to do this. You go, okay. Yeah. And you Although, just but, what the character does. It, yeah. People can't see this because, as you say, it's, it's, it's a podcast. But you do have a big whiteboard beside you. So are you someone that will um, plan out stuff maybe mid and things like that to try and work out a, no, no, a the whiteboard is so I know what I've written okay right okay so what I do is if you see if you'll, you'll see over here there's like you'll see there's like lots of names and bits and things that's me because I'm doing the final revisions of a novella and I keep forgetting the names of everyone <laughs> things like uh, where they're from what the dates were the things that you have to your copy editor gets really snarky about I really hate when my copy editor gets snarky it's very good <laughs> Um, so, you know, like what their names are. And so that I don't have to, I've got a lot of hits, it's cotton gloves. Because uh, one of my readers went, you don't handle books like that, you have to have cotton gloves. And so that's a note to remind me you're going to put cotton gloves into the into a scene where they're checking out an old book. You know, it's like, so that's what the whiteboard is. Also, I have lists of things I'm supposed to do and that sort cool. of thing. And I, at the far end, you can't see, I have a list of all the, the um, operation names. Because I just don't think that's funny to have a list of the operation names from these completely mythical um, operation names that nobody cares about apart from me. (laughs) (laughs) But in that in that process, do you in the way that you write? Then do you do you end up with a draft? You know, do you push through a first draft to get it sort of roughly there and then revise it a a few times, or do you try and get the first draft as neat as you can? 
right? They they say well, there's no writing, there's rewriting. To which I say bollocks, <laughs> right? <laughs> I like to, I I'm quite famous for giving out a very clean first draft, right? Okay. Right, a complete first draft. And this is and this is one of the reasons why I'm slow. I tend not to write until I know what's going happening, right? But I tend to also write ahead. So. If I get stuck, sometimes I go, well, I have no idea what happens here. I'm just going to go ahead and write this bit where I do know what's happening. And then these kind of bits join up. Mm-hmm. Because, of, I mean, years and years of being a scriptwriter means that I just instinctively do structure. So I don't mm-hmm. worry about turning points and midpoints. I do that automatically. It's just the way I've been trained. I'm just automatically sticking in the goddamn three, actually, it's actually a four-act structure. Four-act structure. They say it's a three-act structure, but the mid-bloody act has got a midpoint. So it's a four-act structure. I don't know what people are talking about. Okay, and, you know, I want to... Yeah, some people say it's a five-act structure. Well, you you can can argue it's it's not really... The number of acts is not really important. It's not not the the important thing. The important thing is basically that you you not do, like, boring things where nothing happens for, like... Yeah. So what the act structure is to rise is yes, it's got to go up and down, up and down, otherwise people get upset. And you should get it should, no the, the ups and the downs should get more dramatic as you get towards the end. Even you know, but people get kind of held up. They they buy these books, and then they get very you know, kind of fixated on these kind of structures. And and really, they're just guidelines. So yeah. you just, you just they just help. They just help things. They're not they're, people take them too seriously. Well, um, let's have a quick chat about your latest entry in the series then, which is called Amongst Our Weapons, and it's yes. out very soon. So why don't you give us a brief uh, description I, of what the book's about? It's very hard to give a brief description. <laughs> I'm <spoiling> it. <laughs> Amongst Our Weapons. See, the trouble is that with a series, right, is like you could, I can give this description. Peter Grant <laughs> finds a dead body and then stuff happens. Yay! Every single <laughs> book. Except for Fox Last Summer, where it's a kidnapping, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, they keep asking me this question. I keep not having an answer. <laughs> Amongst Our Weapons is basically about the past affecting the present. And that's really dull sounding. Look, it's got murders, it's got fighting, it's got a trip to Glossop. And Manchester, who could forgive? Who could put? Who doesn't want a trip to Manchester? <laughs> right? It's got exciting things, and and I I'm crap at this. I really am. Um, yeah, Peter Grant deals with something that nobody expects. See? Like it. It's, it's it's not the blurb that I would expect to see on the back of the book, but. It, it might but work. I'm very intrigued now to find out what, what exactly. it's actually about. I mean, it's a mystery. The trouble with mysteries, right, is you don't talk too much about them. Okay, Peter Grant, there's a body in the... Uh, there's a. Do you know what the silver vaults are? No. Right, the silver vaults are these underground shopping shops for silver under, under a house, uh, under a building in Chancery Lane. And they're basically... What happens when someone goes, why are we schlepping all this silver up? to put in the shop why don't we just leave the silver down here and have people come down and look at it and it's an institution i didn't know existed until quite until i started i was looking around for a reason to write write this book and it is essentially um i don't want to say it's a locked room mystery but it's like it's not a very unlikely place for a murder to happen Mm -hmm. with and for someone not to be caught immediately 
and someone has been killed uh, in, a, in a definitely magical way down in the Silver Vault. And Peter is called in and the folly is called in. And uh, Peter is training a new uh, 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 an assistant called Danny, um, uh, Danny Whitford and from Dagenham. And uh, Nightingale and Peter and Galeen and all the normal... So we round up the normal suspects and off we go into the sunset shenanigans. Uh, but also at the same time, and the ticking clock in this is Beverly's about to pop. Right. Uh, okay. So he has to wrap up the case before Beverly pops because there's just not going to be... He's can't, he has to go on paternity leave as soon as that happens. There's no way he's not getting on paternity leave. Excellent. And wh- when is that out? What date is that out? That is out on the 7th of April in Britain, 9th of April in America, and in Auf Deutsch on the 13th of April. Excellent. Nice. Look forward and to that. Obviously, the the, um, the Rivers of London has spawned this huge franchise, it, and huge. beyond books even. So you've written... Lots of comics set in the, set in the rivers of London. Well, what made you want to do that? Well, I wanted to write comics, and finally, I had leverage. <laughs> <laughs> That's the great thing. If you have a successful IP, you can go around and go, "Oh, I can use this to do something I've always wanted to do." So you, you know, you, it's 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 like Terry Pratchett and the orangutans. You know, you if you're Terry Pratchett, you can call up an orangutan center and go, "I've really made a recipe. Can I come to see orangutans really close up?" They go, "Yeah, I'm sure you can." Bring a camera crew, right? And it's the same. I'm on a much less impressive basis. Right? <laughs> I could go to Titan and go, look, I've got this IP. Let me, let me, let me write a comic. Please, 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 please. And I'll let you have a Rivers of London comic. And that's what we did. I mean, it was a bit more involved and professional than that. But that's what it basically boiled down. Basically. Yeah. yeah. And so now I have comics. It's great. I always want really? to write comics. Now I can write comics. Now I've written everything, basically. Yeah, that's right. I think, yeah. For poetry. Well, I have written poetry, but nobody has ever, ever. <laughs> And um, is also, am I right in saying it's being uh, made into a TV show uh, by Simon Pegg? Is that still uh, on the cards? Well, it's a TV. Simon Pegg, um, we all suffered a bit of setback with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that's that's a viable thing. But it's, there's always people looking to make a TV show out of it. But TV shows, are it's a very expensive show. And so therefore, I always think of it as Schrodinger's TV show. In that you will read this in a box, and we don't know whether there's a TV show in the box or not. And one day we will open it, and we will know whether there's a TV show in there or not. Um, but it's it's TV shows incredibly complex operations. Yeah, so many people involved to yeah. moving parts. Also, yeah. the money, just the money, and yeah, then okay. who's going to pay for it, and who's you know, especially a show where you're going to blow up Covent Garden in the first you know episode three. <laughs> um, you can't, you know, it's not going to be made on a BBC budget, so it's going to have to be yeah. Amazon and someone like that. So it's just, it's just a lot of money, and you know, the more money involved in a project, the more people get panicky about it. Yeah, all they want, as you say, they want a sure thing, and I don't blame them. You know, I'm shelling out six million dollars an episode. I want a bit of an assurance yeah. <laughs> that more than five people are going to watch it. Yeah, okay? that's fair enough. Yeah. Although you do wonder about some of the stuff that is made, if that's the if that's yeah, the basis of it, but you have to understand that you don't see what happens behind the process, right? It's like some things get made because they're really big in Japan or something, mm-hmm. and it will sell really well in Japan, and that will cover the costs. And we might as well try and sell it somewhere else as well, or you might get made because you know somebody's dad 
owns the IP or someone really, really wants this actor or the actor's done a, or it's like a sort of big star has done a deal where you do this and I'll do something else. Yeah. You, you never really know. All those things go on. I, I don't have anything to do with that side of the business because uh, I, I, I have this terrible urge to strangle people. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to be the subject of my own drama. <laughs> And would you, having now had this success with Rivers of London, would you want to go back to the TV world at all, or are you happy I, in the novel I like world? To write scripts, a couple of scripts. I like writing scripts; scripts are fun. I mean, mm-hmm. apart from the they're much shorter than books, as I pointed out earlier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't really want to get back immersed in that world. It's it's a very difficult world. It's full of terrible people. And you know it's it's very hard work. It's a very hard work world, and it's it's something you have to be quite young to enjoy. I think mm-hmm. if I was twenty or in my thirties, I'd be like, "Yay, let's go do it!" But now I'm like, "Oh no, I'd much rather have cocoa." <laughs> you know. Uh, so I mean, what else are you, are you working on? Just now? You've got the new book coming out soon. I take it you've got more books lined I've up. Just for the finished, uh, a Reynolds novella, which is a side character, another one of my side nice. characters. I've just, I'm starting, after the tour, I'm starting another novella and another novel. Uh, the, the next novel will be set in Aberdeen because I feel like oh. Aberdeen has not suffered enough. Is this in the series or is this a standalone? Oh, this will be, this will be, no, this will be Rivers of London 10, as my publishers have started calling it. <laughs> nice. I'm no longer allowed to tell you the titles in advance because apparently they have to build up a whole thing. So I time enough. Okay, fair enough. know what the titles are. It's long gone. Now I have to wait until we do a proper orchestrated Twitter announcement with like bells and whistles and graphics. And stuff. Excellent. Yeah, well, well uh, we look forward to that one, but we look forward to Amongst Our Weapons before that. What was the last book that you read? Uh, well, fiction or non-fiction? You could be either. Yeah. Uh, well, the last book I, I read all the way through for fun. Uh, well, actually, it's an audio book. Uh, oh god, I can't see what it was. <laughs> well, because I'm listening to something now, but I don't want to give free kind of advertising to people. That's terrible. Uh, oh, I, I, well, no, that's I didn't. I'm not reading that for fun. That's research. Uh, yeah, I'm reading the the unspoken name. Oh, what's that? The A.K. Larkwood, which is basically fantasy, a very very good fantasy. I'm owner fantasy. I can't read. See, my thing is, I can't read a crime novel while I'm writing crime. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Because I, I want to go off and write a completely different type of crime novel. Yeah. So it has to be kind of comfort. It has to be something reading that's fun, but not I'm not, not going to make me want to go off and write a completely different book from what I'm writing at the moment. So um, uh, I can read a crime novel when I'm writing like the fantasy, something fantastical, but I can't write and read a crime novel. I do like it. And also most of them, I've read all my crime series. I've read all of them. I like cosy <laughs> crime, you see. And I've read, okay, yeah, yeah. I've read all the cosy crime that's fit to read, right? That's been published in the last 20 years. And so now I'm like a bit bereft waiting for people to kind of like write more cozy crime. Please, can I stop it? Can I get on with it? It's like, <laughs> crime's like chocolate. You kind of have num, 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 nums. And then you just go, oh, I've eaten the entire box. <laughs> I, I think I think there's going to be, well, certainly it seems that publishers want a lot of it, um, given the success of... Um, Thursday. Yes, Murder exactly. Club? 
Yeah. Osmond, Richard Osmond stuff. Yeah. Richard yeah. Osmond, yeah. yeah that, they, well, Richard Osmond, that is like, that is designed. I, I always I always think of the Osmond book I was reading it. I thought of um, Alien and the speech that, uh, speech that hurt, not hurt, um, the robot Ash makes when he says, you, you admire it, I admire its purity. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean, I, I kind of liked it. I didn't love it, but I kind of liked it. But it's so... It's it's not I don't even think he's doing it on purpose though. I don't think you could actually write a book that, but it is so cozy crime. And it's like pretty yeah. much if you ticked off all the boxes, but I don't actually believe he did that. I just think it's because he spent a tremendous amount of time writing. Mm-hmm. And you start you, you know, and I think he's waiting and, I, and you can never tell because sometimes like maybe they got it got published now. Maybe it's been sitting around for ages, but it yeah. got published now. Yeah, it's true. Because now is the time for that kind of cozy crime. Because like everyone likes a good horrible murder when the economy is going well, and everyone likes a funny murder when they're feeling miserable. yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Actually, I suppose maybe don't maybe the, the the time for the really dark horrible crime stuff is not well, bad news. <laughs> bad news for you, Tarek. Yeah, no. <laughs> you're big. No, there's always, no, there's always a core audience. There's always a core audience for horrible gruesome murders. <laughs> I've met. Them. Uh, what about the last film that you've watched then? The last film I watched was The Batman, which I really enjoyed, despite the fact that I wanted to shout, for God's sake, get the cameraman a light meter at one point. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's very dark. Yeah, I... My son said, it's very dark, Dad. I thought he meant thematically, right? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realise he literally meant that there were wrong stretches of it, because my eyesight's not brilliant. And I was like sitting there going, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I was a big fan of that as well. I thought it was, I, it was a bit overlong, but I thought it was brilliant. Like, I, okay. I really enjoyed. It. I really enjoyed it because actually, it, it stressed the kind of detective aspect. Of yeah. It. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were seeing the exact same thing just prior to. Yeah, world's greatest detective. You see, that yeah. was Batman's other shtick. It wasn't just man who hits people while dressed. Yeah. As yeah. Well. and the That's films right. have never really shown that kind of that part of his character. Uh, They've always leaned into the just action side of it. Yeah, because if you're making an expensive film, you know, the action is what you want. But this yeah. one, you know, and they had the leisure, they took the time to do it. I mean, yeah, I would, I would have trimmed out 10, 15 minutes, hour out of it somewhere. But I thought it was very good. And also, I like the chemistry with Catwoman and all that kind of stuff, which I thought worked very well. Yeah. And I felt there was a certain amount of psychological depth to it, which was which you don't expect from a Batman movie. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, no, I thought it was fantastic. And also, best Batmobile chase sequence I've best, seen best ever, I think. It was, that was amazing. Just, yeah, as my son said, it's like, bro, you can tell that he made that himself. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Like Bodged together, yeah. sticking a J it's a J engine in the back of a car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, the last TV show that you watched or are watching? I, I'm watching uh, a French TV series called Candice Renoir. Okay, about a, a, a French housewife um, detective who, who has been out of the job for 10 years and comes back and all her colleagues are like, oh God, you don't know anything, we've all changed. And I, I, I like that because it's 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 procedurally enough. It's also in French, so it always sounds better. Everything sounds better in French. So you're, not, you're, you're sitting there and you don't know whether the dialogue's crap or not because it's in a foreign language. Yeah, just... yeah. or you could be crap actors, but you have no idea because... Yeah, you have no idea whether it's a terrible performance or not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so I'm really enjoying that. I mean, it could be very good for all I know, but it is funny and I enjoy it. And, you know, I like, I like the lighter side 
of crime. <laughs> I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Mark Billingham people where people get their birds sewn into their chests and yeah, yeah. Detectives like are, are two inches away from a mental breakdown. <laughs> I mean, I was the, never like that. I mean, the whole Scandi Noir craze just drove me mad. It was like, for God's sake! I mean, especially. Valanda, right? Because if you look at the statistics for that town he actually he's the detective is yeah. <laughs> have one murder every five years, right? And so you cannot possibly be tired of life as a detective in a town like that. When a murder turns up, you're not gonna go, Oh, it's a senseless killing, you're gonna go, Yes, a murder at last. Like, <laughs> all my calls and we can do the whole crime scene thing, it's not a bloody car crime for fuck's sake, you know. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, that's the, that's the 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 last thing we always do in this is a, a super quick fire, either or, and I always say there's no right answers apart from one. Okay. So we'll start off with fantasy or sci-fi. Both. Okay, that's cheating, but we'll let it slide. That's fine. Well, because uh, yeah, but I'm not an either or person on that one. That's just I don't think it's an either or. I defy. Uh, um, TV or cinema? TV, like the long form. Night Owl or Early Bird? Night Owl. Oh, Early Bird now used to be a Night Owl. Um, music. Were... Music or no music when you're writing? Music. And last one, real book or ebook? Both. Okay, I'm going to say that And audiobook, it sounded like it's well. I'm, I'm a terrible person. I'm, I mean, for me, right, I have not saved money on the ebook revolution at all because now. I get a book, so I get like I like a hardback, so I get myself a hardback. You don't want to touch the hardback; you're going to leave that I, on the shelf. Yeah, well, no, but I'm 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 a spine cracking kind of. Oh, I'm not even a kind of preserve the hardback kind of reader, right? But also, I like to you know you're on a trip, you can't carry more than like two hardbacks before your bag yeah. gets too heavy. So I take my ebook with me, so I get everything on ebook, right, including a lot of my research stuff because then you can like highlight stuff when you do research. So um, I, I do that. And then if there's an audio version, I usually buy that as well. So it's like I end up with like, so bloody authors, authors love you. I'm doing what yeah, no, yeah. out of me now. <laughs> I, I do love the ebook, audiobook syncing up though, of, you know, yeah, that's, place. Yeah, it's, really it, that's really handy. Yeah. That's very yeah. handy, especially on, on nonfiction. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Listening to a book for, um, for work, well, for work, right? For research or something. For example, there's a very long book called Hitler's Monsters, which is about the occult tendency in, in German National Socialism. And that's very useful. It's a very long book. And it's a very good book. And it's very interesting. But you, if you're actually doing it for research, you have to occasionally get a note down a name or something. Mm-hmm. You stop and then you can bring it up on WhisperSync and then you, you um, check it and then you can get the name of it, make it highlight the name, and then you can go back to listening to it, which is very painless. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Although I, I find with non like if for things like research, I prefer to have the well, physical the, book so I can flip back and forth and yeah, sort, you, I, sort of thing. I have the ebook and the audio book for when I'm traveling or or I'm listening, you know, because you spend quite a lot of dead time on buses and stuff. Yeah. So I have an audio or an ebook. But when I'm at home, yeah, I tend to have my research books, for example. I have like all. I have two versions of this. I have this version, and then I have you know. Uh, I think and it's right. So basically, I haven't done it very much on this one, but you, some of my books are like full of like sticky things and notes and mm-hmm. 
yeah, and stuff like that. Cool. I also well, because I'm pretentious. <laughs> What's that? Oh, nice. Oh, very nice. Very, yeah, very you need to describe what you're holding up there because I'm holding up money. I fact, you see, one of the things like I, when I earn enough money, I could spend on stupidly frivolous things like leather-bound notebooks. <laughs> so now I go, oh, it's so smooth. You get to un- unwrap the leather clasp yeah. around. Uh, it's too. got a leather thing that you are, you wrap around. So you, you go, I am in fact a naturalist from the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off to throw the One Ring into the Mount Doom and. Yeah. Excellent. That was a really great chat and some interesting points he makes about uh, genres and we've chatted before about the different genres and how people will often stay in their lanes and people don't like to say they write certain genres or read certain genres but it's interesting that if you his point of view is if you're a sci-fi reader you will move into crime, whereas a crime reader won't necessarily do the same. Yeah, I, th- I think that comes from, you know, it, it does feel uh, th- there's a ranking of, of genre, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there is. There is and yeah. like uh, crime is like the ex- crime and thrillers and stuff are the acceptable Everybody side reads of genre. That. That's all, exactly. Um, yeah. And then below that comes sci-fi and fantasy and below that comes sort of romance. But in fact, if you look at the sales figures, it's probably the other way around. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's very strange. I never quite understand. It's almost like people are afraid to see what they like or or, yeah. or, or or what they read or what they write. And 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 I don't know if maybe if you read sci-fi, are you maybe a more open person to reading more varied stuff? I mean, sci-fi is such a wide, encompassing but genre. Also, I think um, my view is that sci-fi is... You know, science fiction will often have crime in it, or it'll exactly. have thriller in it, totally. or it'll have you know, it'll tell a type of story that's familiar to these yeah. sort of things. So yeah. I don't know if that makes it more open. Whereas if you read crime, you don't want to move out of the real world, as it were. Yeah, yeah, somewhere. yeah. It might well be. Sure. I, I, I feel a lot of crime stuff is very um, samey, not necessarily a bad thing, but just very kind of. It fits you know a what you're getting. You know what you're getting exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. people will like what they like, and they don't necessarily want to. Expand out with that, whereas sci-fi readers, as you say, they get a dose of of, of everything under the banner of sci-fi, and so maybe it's yeah. more easy for them to to move around. But um, yeah, yeah, but interesting stuff. Yeah, and uh, yeah, thanks very much to Ben for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate him taking the time to do that. Um, amongst our weapons is now out. Uh, it's it was out on the seventh of April in the UK. I think it's the ninth of April in the US and thirteenth in Germany. I think that's what he said. So. Um, you will be able to grab a copy of that from your local bookshop, no matter where you are, very soon. <laughs> um, and we'll put a link in the podcast description uh, where you can buy it online as well. So, yeah, thanks again, Ben. Um, and looking towards next week, which is going to be the last episode for uh, a few weeks, just to give us a chance to have a break and uh, <laughs> also build up some some, some more great uh, guests yeah, we've got some very exciting ideas in the pipeline that we're needing some time off to try and work out. If exactly, we can exactly. Bring them to life. Exactly. So um, it won't be too long a break, but um, it, there will be there will be a few weeks off, I think, in between. But before that, we are speaking with Leroy Kincaid. Yeah. Who is um, an interesting guy? He was a former professional wrestler. Um, I think he held the Guinness World Record for the number of choke slams in a minute, which is incredible. 
Um, he also what appeared. Is it, how many is it? Is that a lot? Is it like uh, I don't know. I five or is I've it like not 50? been given the stats okay. on that, and I'm not sure who volunteers for that as well to be the person being choked slammed. Oh, you think it's like a line of people just like and he just goes down the line just choke? Oh, maybe them. yeah, it might be. I didn't. I, sh- I didn't ask him about this. <laughs> I, I should have done that. No, this is this is people will understand why this question wasn't asked because I wasn't there. Mark did this one exactly. solo. I wasn't well, able to exactly. Make it. This was it. I had to do this one on my own. But it's it's a it's a really good interview with Leroy. Um and if, yeah, if he's a really interesting yourself. guy. He's he's from professional wrestling. He has gone into uh, the creative industries. He, he's been an actor and is now a writer director. His latest film or his debut film, in fact, The Last Right, is just out on streaming services now. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting chat. So that's next week's episode. But before we go, um, if you enjoyed the episode, please do take the time to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch, they can always send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at UK page one. Yep, but otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next week. See you later.